it does seem that psychedelics, you know, in the right context could have a profound effect that could change someone's life. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Dr. Matthew Johnson, professor at John Hopkins. Dr. Johnson, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Doing good. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Dr. Johnson. Really excited to dive into, you know, psychedelics and all the fun stuff that's going on in the world right now. Uh, but more importantly, how are you doing today, Brian? Yeah, I'm excited. There are a lot of information that we need some clarity on from uh, from Matt Johnson. And I think it's it's the right time, especially with psychedelics and all the compounds and information coming out. But before we kind of dive into some of those specifics, we've got a very aggressive East Coast, West Coast battle here. And just for the record, Dr. Johnson, which side do you choose? I got to be East Coast. I mean, I grew up mid-Atlantic. I went to college in Oregon, but been back on the East Coast since grad school, so 25 years or so. So I got to I gotta go with my East Coast tribe. I love it. Let the record stay, Callan. So <laughs> Dr. Since, at least one of you is a fellow East Coaster. Like <laughs> you can <laughs> feel free to call me Matt. Appreciate the Dr. Johnson intro, but let, you know, we can be real and yeah, call me Matt. So Matt, for our listeners on from about you, can you give it a little background about yourself and kind of how you got into psychedelic research? Yeah, so I have a PhD in in experimental psychology. So I don't focus on treatment, treating disorders like a clinical psychologist, although I have very similar training, but I certainly have been trained in the, you know, very psychological disorders, but more in understanding the behavior, how um how to how to do, conduct science to understand people's psychology, what makes people tick. Um, how they behave in certain situations. And a big focus of my research, really going back to grad school and, and gosh, even going back to college, I did dabbled in some cocaine research. Big focus has been um, behavioral pharmacology, which is kind of a fancy way of saying studying uh, studying drugs, what we think of as psychoactive drugs, whether they're legal, illegal, but drugs that affect the mind. Um, uh, so I mentioned did some cocaine research that was in rats, but then in grad school, did work with um, uh, actually a number of different drugs. Did a lot with with tobacco smoking, and as a scientist, I certainly you know caffeine, alcohol, tobacco. These are all drugs. You know, like again, legal illegal is kind of like just this superficial societal thing. But uh, did a work a lot of work understanding addiction. You know, to a lot of these substances and what the from a behavioral economics lens, understanding the decision-making surrounding that. Did a lot of work understanding how people, how how nicotine and regulated tobacco consumption, how people would respond under different conditions to, to choose to smoke. Applied a lot of kind of decision-making models to understand kind of these traps people get into, whether it's alcohol or caffeine or you name it, like if addiction where the there's a competition between short-term and long-term rewards and kind of apply that to a lot of different substances. Moving into to, um, my postdoc work, I got more involved with sort of more drug administration research beyond just tobacco and humans. So cocaine and um, alcohol, methamphetamine, benzodiazepines, like some of the downers, the sleeping anti-anxiety drugs. GHB, a long, long list. But in that time, I got involved with uh, psychedelic work as well back in 2004 and been doing it ever since. And so 
I've continued studying the other drugs throughout. I have had a long line of research for years supported by the U.S. government and NIH and studying the sexual risk behavior associated with certain drugs. I do things like get people loaded up on cocaine or alcohol or methamphetamine in the lab and then ask them these hypothetical sexual decision decisions, whether they'd have sex with certain people, photos of, you know, you show photos of people. Would you would you have sex with, with or without a condom? What would you do if you had to wait an hour to get a condom? And some stuff like that, which sounds kind of uh, crazy, but it actually um, stumbled upon some, um, I think, important you know findings to determine like what's kind of really driving the risk behavior, what kind of modulates like whether people are making uh, riskier or less risky choices with drugs. And then my work with t- psychedelics that whole time, again, since 2004, I've studied, you know, so-called healthy normals, which is kind of code for people without the disorders of non-therapeutic studies. So the effects on personality, the effects on the subjective effects, such as this thing called mystical experience, long-term, you know, positive and negative outcomes, but it tends to be under prepared and, you know, structured conditions tends to be positive. Um, And then moved into therapeutic applications, working with distressed cancer patients, some of which terminal found long-term reductions in anxiety and depression. For about 15 years, I've had this line of research with smoking cessation, helping people quit tobacco smoking, kind of combining my long-term interest in understanding tobacco and nicotine going back to grad school and using psilocybin, in this case, as a treatment for that. I've done work with depression um, for the last number of years with psilocybin. I also did some work with some um, more exotic psychedelics, including salvinorin A, which is the active agent and primary active agent anyway, and salvia divinorum, um, which is still legal in most places. Um, did some high-dose work with dextromethorphan, uh, even compared to psilocybin. So this would be so-called robo-tripping. It's a ketamine relative. It's it's in a cough syrup, but very psychedelic. But that, and continue to look at um, you know psychedelics. I've uh, got the the I received the first government grant since the 1960s, looking at the uh, therapeutic applications of one of the classic psychedelics. This, this is psilocybin, continuing the line of psilocybin to help with tobacco addiction. Um, so that's where I spend most of my time these days, but have some other, you know, um, irons in the fire in the psychedelic world. So back in 2004, psychedelics did not have the kind of societal or cultural acceptance, I would say. I mean, they're not completely accepted now, but it's definitely more mainstream than it was in 2004. So when you're first getting into that kind of work, what was like the motivation? Was there hesitancy? Kind of like talk us through those early days and the early 2000s. It's, it was something that I wanted to you know, research. Um, going back to really my college days when I I uncovered this kind of this history, I, um, I remember being at the li- the college library, and this is believe it or not, back in this is the '90s. Like this was, I mean, the internet existed, but it was like telnet, text only type of like crazy. This is like you know, in the library you know, Dewey Decimal System card catalog, you know, reading all the books I could on psychedelics, discovering that older history of people using like, you know, LSD to treat alcoholism and and, and the existential distress from terminal cancer from that and other things back in that older era and, and kind of discovering that history. And so, you know, with that combined with just my my growing kind of just interest in 
across the board behavioral pharmacology like how these psychoactive drugs can affect behavior even like like caffeine how does like you know you know drinking a bunch of cups of coffee will just keep you up all night and like make you you know help you get a lot more work done it's like what's going on with that or people you know getting drunk and people being friendlier and like more relaxed and doing things they wouldn't normally do and the good the bad the ugly across all of these substances and um so i was just fascinating with like I was fast. I got hooked on drugs or I should say drug research to be clear. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I got to really get hooked on this, like this understanding of like, how does that happen? How do you just have these little molecules that somehow affect the brain that then have these profound effects and including things like someone becoming a hardcore alcoholic or addicted to heroin, et cetera, or positive, you know, using these, you know, substances towards benefit, you know, whether social relaxation or yeah getting some more work done with a stimulant. Um, but within that broader context, the psychedelics always stood out. And I tell people if they had this interest, this interest in the science of psychoactive drugs, either they have to be fascinated with psychedelics or, or they don't know much about them. Cause this is like, I mean, the, the indigenous cultural use where they've been held in this kind of sacred way by a bunch of different cultures for you know, apparently by the evidence going back to prehistorical times. And then you see the massive changes that they had in our society since the 60s. I mean, the claims by artists like, you know, musicians and countless, even Nobel Prize winner Kerry Mullis said he wouldn't have been able to invent PCR, which revolutionized biology if it wasn't for having had psychedelic experiences. He, he, when you look at all that, you think, well, this is not it's like the Sesame Street uh, game, you know, which one of these things is not like the other. Like this kind of really stands out. And if you're interested as a psychologist in in behavior change, which was really a thread of my interest throughout my career, it's like how do substances affect behavior and how can we affect positive behavior change? For example, people who are addicted, who want to quit whatever substance, how do we help them? How do we give them the tools that make them more successful? Like I, I mean, psychedelics are just, I mean, they're, they're weird. Like you hear these stories even before the modern research of, I mean, there was the older work with LSD, but these stories from, you know, you know, med people say, you know, they were a heavy drinker until they, they, they just took acid for fun one time. And then they just had this, like this transformative experience. And they thought, what am I doing? And then, I mean, I've, I've published research search on it by this point, documenting, you know, it doesn't prove it, it's not a clinical trial, but just documenting these stories where people claim that doing, you know, largely, you know, mushrooms or, or LSD helped them quit drinking, quit smoking, using cocaine, opioids, um, even cannabis. Um, people that claimed um, some type of a problem with one of these substances where they were using it too much or had, you know, were using it in a harmful way that they either drastically cut down or or in a lot of cases, you know, totally stop these substances because of an experience with a psychedelic. And typically the person wasn't even looking to do that. They just, they just took, you know, they took mushrooms for fun because their buddy scored some, they were curious, you know, um, it wasn't like some deep shamanistic intent or therapeutic intent. And they just had this overview look of their life and made this change it like that's different I, I don't know of any other substance where there's that type of used at one time and had a transformative positive effect on their life even with something like cannabis where there's like countless 
therapeutic and you know in in many cases like clearly legitimate you know positive and therapeutic claims it tends to be palliative and more more in line with traditional mental health medications in the sense that there's typically not one use you know they all oh, you know someone says they smoke pot once and it changed their life and they never touch it again you know it's like no you want the that effect you know they they've used it you know to one degree or another they've continued to use it but you know, I've never familiar with any other case with another substance where there's been this like, you know, from a single instance, there's been this like decades long claim that it changed the direction of their life in a positive way. There's plenty of people that killed someone, you know, driving drunk or, you know, had a stroke when they on coke or something like that it was a long term negative in their life from one use, but they kind of stand out in that way. So that kind of summarizes my like, why the heck, why am I interested in psychedelics? Like, why would that be interesting to a, a psychologist that wants to understand behavior change? Was it the first time you heard a story of like a breakthrough like this, where it was like a one dose and they were instantly fixed or improved? Did, did Were you skeptical? And then you, you continued to look into it. I mean, you had to have been slightly skeptical just hearing kind of like, the the complete change because typically that's that's rare exactly like you said you, you're not aware of any other uh compounds that can do this so take us through kind of that early feeling of the skepticism and then working through some of the things that kind of solidified your belief that this could be something that's a game changer yeah I, my skepticism kind of was a i guess was around and still is actually probably even more so just kind of the broader like you know to what degree does someone really change like so i don't know one of my, my, my things i focus on a lot is like yeah, you know using any of these substances doesn't necessarily make you a good person you know i think the changes are 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 relatively you know targeted which can have a profound impact on someone's life so you know there is some skepticism about the overblown claims so i i, I had met people that for example quit you know drinking from 12 steps so like and had one of these kind of aha experiences outside of psychedelics so i mean it seemed clear to me like as a, well as a training psychologist even before that in, in college that like sometimes people do have big experiences in their life that where they change it's not kind of aha moments where that change their life so it seemed credible that you could have these that psychedelics could be leveraged towards that and so it might be a little weird because i've one of the things I've, i told people to be skeptical of is that um it's become very fashionable for psychedelic scientists that say they were such a skeptic and they, and then they saw the results from their first study and then their eyes were opened and they, yeah. How did you get to the point? And at least if you didn't think it was a decent bet, how did you get to the point where you, like, let me tell you, it is really hard to do human research, <laughs> especially with the schedule one substance. You have to put in oftentimes years of work to get to that point, just to dose somebody. And like, it wasn't like you did this on a whim. Oh, let's do this experiment. And so take that with a grain of salt. It makes a good story. It makes for a good story. I was, please believe me, I was such a hard-nosed, rigorous, skeptical scientist, but I was so shocked by the results. It's okay to be a scientist and have, you should be open if the data tells you something else, but it's okay to have your guesses. Yeah, like my best bet is that, I don't know, birds are more likely to fly than ungulates like it's, it's like you can you can observe the natural world and see certain patterns and it doesn't mean you don't you can't do an experiment and you shouldn't be open to the results uh, but it doesn't make you a bad scientist for having 
a hypothesis or, you know, to use plain language, have a really strong guess, you know, your, your gut tells you, I think there's something there. And looking at the world and all the stories, it, it does seem that psychedelics, you know, in the right context could have a profound effect that could change someone's life. So I, I thought that was probably the case going back to college when it started like kind of understand the history and, you know, talking to people that have, you know, had profound, you know, effects from psychedelics. And, and so, you know, it doesn't make it scientifically, it's not the same as running a clinical trial and seeing some evidence. Um, but yeah, I was never sort of like, I didn't have that aha moment in terms of like, I was blown away by my own research. I mean, I had been blown away, I guess, by the magnitude. It it really is impressive. And how um sometimes you just see like the 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 participants after the sessions and they're just like describing this experience. And uh it's not always the case, but sometimes it's just it's just overwhelming where they just it it's so meaningful to them and it's so clear to them that this has really changed something. And sometimes you do get these like really huge aha moments where you just think like, this is, this has got to be good. Like this is, they're going to leverage this. This is going to have a lasting impact and like, oh yeah, that's why all the paperwork is worth it to do this research, to, to, to see these effects and to, to document them if they are real, you know, for at least some conditions like that, let people know, let the world know, Hey, take this seriously. Um, we need to look more into this and if it passes muster with the FDA, et cetera, like make it available to people. So with most drugs, the, the dose makes the poison, right? Um, and so throughout, uh, your career, you've been focused on dose a lot, right? In terms of trying to figure out, and I'm guessing you're trying to figure out if there's a specific quantity of these chemicals that you ingest that could potentially facilitate that aha moment. Right. Mm -hmm. And so kind of talk us through like how you choose the dose, where that kind of comes from within the literature and how that has impacted a lot of your studies going forward. So, yeah, and I've done um, a number of studies using different doses. Probably the biggest was when they used four different doses of psilocybin plus a placebo and in healthy, normal people. But looking at these were sort of very therapeutically meaningful outcomes that show a relationship to the therapeutic outcomes in, in the clinical studies, you know, things like mystical experience. Um, but the, yeah, the, the essentially it, it, the results seem to be in line with the older literature of, you know, what you would call heroic doses for psychedelics, for these classic psychedelics. Like, and a lot of people, especially with the whole microdosing thing that's in vogue, a lot of people get it confused. They assume these are like, you know, yeah, this is, this is a study, you know, like it's, you guys are kind of using a sissy dose. I've had, I've actually, I didn't, haven't mentioned, but some of that work with, some of the work with psychedelics, including some of the novel psychedelics, like comparing dexamethorphan to to psilocybin. Yeah, sometimes people have come in. Those studies, we want the connoisseur, the person that could say, "Oh, this was like taking, you know, two CI and then like smoking some five methoxy DMT after the peak one time, and like I had to, you know, the connoisseur, like." You know, so you want those people, the psychonauts, that's your perfect yeah, subject there, your participant. Um, I've had plenty of those people get our high dose that we give to people of psilocybin and just be like, holy, holy shit, you guys were not kidding me. Like, you know, and sometimes they say like that was the most powerful psychedelic they've ever had. Maybe part of it was the introspective framework with the eye shades, but the dose is just straight up huge. 
And so I always like to tell people it's not only more than a microdose, but compared to a regular, like a recreational dose. Um, and there's obviously variation, you know, but what's typical, like what someone might want to take if they're taking that at a concert or even at a festival, even like Burning Man. Like this is more than that. This is the heroic dose range, which is. Can you give us like some sort of like boundaries to demonstrate like microdosing, recreational range and then heroic dose? Yeah. And again, caveats to all of this because, you know, everyone's different. Yeah. And especially if we talk about mushrooms, because it's like just like oranges vary in vitamin C and sugar, like mushrooms are going to vary in psilocybin and psilocin contents. But the high dose being in terms of psilocybin, um, 30 milligrams or higher, you know, I guess you could count, you know, tw- probably 25 and higher. Most of the work I've done is 30 milligrams, typically body weight adjusted. So have people over about 150 pounds get a higher dose. So oftentimes they're getting 45, 50 if they're a heavier person. We published some research suggesting you don't really need to do that. So the work going forward doesn't adjust for body weight. But um, that 30 milligrams, and this will probably be meaningful for a lot of people, is roughly equivalent to what Terrence McKenna, for those familiar with him, would called the the heroic dose of psilocybin cubensis mushroom, so five dried grams, based on average um, mushroom potency um, done by scientific analysis. So just make that real for people, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for, you know, someone to, you know, score some mushrooms and friends are, you know, going to take them together. They'll split an eighth ounce of mushrooms two or three ways. You know, and that's not going to be a microdose. That's going to, and I, and I should say a microdose is sort of opinions vary, but something like a half gram of mushrooms, like pretty small amount, like sort of if you, if it's powdered and packed into a capsule, it's like one or less than one capsule, um, depending on the capsule size. But, um, and it's typically conceived of as like sort of one twentieth of what a full psychedelic dose is, roughly speaking. But, you know, so a recreational dose might be sort of, uh, uh, and, and, you know, splitting an eighth ounce of mushrooms, uh, two or three ways. Um, I guess I'm going across, you know, grams and ounces. So what, uh, an ounce would be, you know, about 28 grams. So what an, uh, an, an eighth would be something like three, a little over three, three grams. So a microdose would be like less than one gram, maybe a half gram. And three milligrams or five dried grams would be somewhere between an eighth ounce and a quarter ounce of mushrooms. That's not split two or three ways. That's one person taking it. So one person taking almost a quarter ounce of mushrooms or something pretty much in, in between an eighth and a quarter ounce of mushrooms by themselves. So, I mean, some people with experience out there might be, you know, saying, whoa, <laughs> like, you know, that, yeah, that's not what you <laughs> want to take it. That's there's always exceptions. There's always that knucklehead that like, well, they'll take anything anywhere. But like if someone I put this, if someone's a burning man, they probably want to like get back in their tent, zip up for the night. Like they're not even like <laughs> able to walk around the playa, like, you know, you know, just, just shut it down for the focus night. on breathing. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's what you can handle. Like eight hours. No, no public, like, yeah, interactions. Uh so it's it's a true and the thing about psychedelic compared to all those other drugs I've studied is you can give a dose that's like really overwhelming at the psychological or subjective level without being without it being dangerous physiologically. Now there is an exception if someone's at severe risk of heart disease, anything that pushes your blood pressure and pulse up even 
modestly could give you a heart attack or stroke. And so, I mean, there's some people going up a couple flights of upstairs at work is dangerous and their doctor tells them not to. It's people that, you know, have cardiac events, having sex and they end up in the ER or they die. And so anything that gets the blood going is, you know, and so most of these psychedelics are in that category, including psilocybin. But for most healthy people that aren't at the severe risk of heart disease, there's no known lethal overdose. I mean, you could take a, a hundred times what we intend to give as a high dose and there's no there's no way that you're, you're, it's going to kill your liver. It's going to make you stop breathing. It's going to give you a fatal cardiac event. That's the way those three ways are kind of the way most drugs, if you take too much, will kill you. And with kind of the big exceptions being many of the classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, and of course, cannabis being the other big exception. But, you know, you can't go to the drugstore and buy over the counter stuff you can expect to live and take 10, 20, 30, 100 times the dose and expect to live. You can't do that with caffeine, aspirin. You know, certainly not Tylenol. I think like sort of like three times the tenant dose could kill you. So it, it's remarkably safe at the physiological level for most people. So you really can have these profoundly strong subjective effects. Another caveat is like nothing is safe. You know, uh, it's all about what are the risks. And so at the behavioral level, like, yeah, and it it's relatively rare, but it has happened. Like this is a really powerful subjective experience. If you walk around in public, you can get in an accident. You can freak out and panic with a bad trip, run across the highway, get hit by a car. And even though it sounds like 60s era propaganda, and I think it's really rare, it I, there are convincing cases, I think, you know, like of people that are so out there, like they think they can fly. Like I, there's been some cases where it looks like that has happened. And I think that people who have really had very strong psychedelic experiences, they're humble enough to think that, yeah, not typical, but possible. They could see how that could happen if you're really out there and you're no one's watching your back. And so, again, I don't want to, you know, propagandize and scare people. It, it is very rare, but that has happened. And these are really so you could, you know, um, it's more likely you're going to do something that like whatever, just embarrass yourself or, you know, for most, you know, or make a good story. You mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> End up you know, pissing yourself and you're, whole, I don't know, or something, you know. It hauled out by the security and then like paramedics and cops at a concert and then all oh, that just, you know, like spirals, the, you know, whatever the panic and, you know, have some horror story like that. But, um, but yeah, it's like, they're really intoxicating substances at high doses. So that that's more where the relevant risk for most people is at just doing something stupid when you're like really, really high, typically in public is where the, the relevant risk tends to be at. So with microdosing continues to rise with popularity. My question to you is, are, is there is there any literature that demonstrates it has benefits for the individual or is it more so potentially placebo effect? And if it is placebo effect, does it matter if people are feeling better after? Yeah, that last part's really that's a that's a tough one. So the literature and so there hasn't been a lot of studies. There's been a few studies the ones that have really like looked into it carefully in the lab haven't yet found benefit of microdosing any of the claims of antidepressant. So we know there's it's at least part through some like self-blinding uh, research that Imperial College has, has done. It seems like a lot of the claimed benefit, if not all, is placebo effect, which shouldn't be surprising. In fact, most of most of like on the ground medicine. And what you want is a combination of hopefully real efficacy plus placebo, because 
placebo means the power of the mind to have essentially what you could call miraculous effects and sort of the power of the mind over healing, both physically and in this case, like mentally in many cases. So you want to harness that clinically. At the same time, you don't want to approve medications that are purely operating on this because most things have at least some risk. And a hundred years ago, people were selling like literally like snake oil. That's where the name came and other things that, you know, and spending their life fortunes because their kid is dying of some disease. And rather than getting, uh, you know, uh, a, a treatment that may work there, you know, so there's, there's a reason, there's a good reason we have the FDA. And so you, you don't want to rely completely on the placebo effect. Um, so it needs to be worked out. But I, my best guess is that there's there may be some efficacies to the antidepressant effects because we've known for 80 years that chronically giving drugs of various types, whether they the SSRIs starting in the 80s or the older generations of uh, um, antidepressants that chronically augmenting the serotonin system in one way or another can help alleviate depressive symptoms to some degree for some people. And so um, it wouldn't be surprised if, you know, and, and to be clear for folks, unlike the heroic dose model where people take it once or twice, three times in clinical setting, then you see therapeutic benefits in many cases, you know, six months, a year, more than that later. Microdosing is about taking it on a regular basis, usually not every day, but once every few days, there's different models, once every two, three, four days, a couple times a week, something like that. And so, you know, it wouldn't be that surprising if chronically, you know, taking a serotonergic drug led to antidepressant effects. So that's where my strongest bets would be. Um, there might be something there, but so far the, the, the laboratory, the few laboratory studies haven't found that they basically found people are a little bit intoxicated. Like your ability to judge time is a little off, which is like totally fine. And even great. If you're like lying on the couch in the heroic dose model, where you wearing the eye shades and you're having this introspective, you know, experience, but the idea with microdosing is you're going about your daily, you know, like if you're driving to work, you're taking care of your kid, like whatever, like you want to have accurate time perception. You don't want to be less than accurate. You know, it's like being a little bit intoxicated. So, which isn't surprising um, given that you're a whole lot intoxicated if you take a really big dose um, and, and people feel a little bit, um, basically feel a little bit high, you know, which might be consistent with the antidepressant effects, although that's a complex discussion of like, you know, um, in the original antidepressants were stimulants like amphetamine and like why they, they help you not feel good. There's also then like the, is it, is there tolerance to that? Is it, well, in the case of amphetamines, there can be addiction to that, which is, doesn't appear to be the case for these these drugs. That's the other thing in terms of the safety. It doesn't appear that the classic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD are addictive, even though they can be abused, meaning used dangerously. So um, the last part of your question, I think, was like, you know, is it okay if they're if it is just pure placebo effect? And that's complex. I mean, to be clear, I think people should just be warned. I don't think any of these substances should be, you know, uh criminalized. Uh I I, I think for the for the public, I you know, just want to give people the information. This is what we know is riskier versus less risky use. You know, I think people should be free with education and and to know what the, what they're doing and to be, you know, armed to be as safe as, as possible, whatever they're doing, if, if they choose to use, but if it is purely 
the placebo effect, there is some concern. We don't know a whole lot, but like say there's, if there's a little bit of impairment, then, and to be clear, sometimes like people get their dose wrong and cause you know, people are sloppy and sometimes people think they're microdosing and then it's like, whoa, <laughs> they're, they're at work or driving and they're like, oh, okay, I'm pulling over. Uh, <laughs> Got to wait this out, you know? But even if you have a control over the dose, there's some reason to have concern. Like there's some theoretically anything that has an effect on the serotonin B system, which is not the psychedelics work, the classic psychedelics work mainly through activating serotonin A receptors. But most of them uh, also activate serotonin B receptors, which is 2B receptors, serotonin 2B receptors. There is evidence that activating them can lead to heart valve disease. And so this is why this drug FenFen was pulled from the market back in the 80s, um, or maybe it was the early 90s. But because it was discovered after it was approved, a bunch of these a bunch of people were having uh, heart valvulopathy, you know, heart valve disease. There was a hardening of the tissue in the heart valves. And so, and, and that's been worked out pretty well that it's like, yeah, activating this receptor can lead to that. So that doesn't, you know, that's really not a concern if you're talking about these heroic dose models where you're taking it a few times. But if you start taking, talking about, oh, you're going to take this thing twice a week for the next five years, all of a sudden that becomes a relevant question. No one really knows. There's There are people, even scientists that say, oh, that's, we don't know that's the case. That's, you know, don't scare people. That's a bunch of hogwash. It might be, but like even we just the thing is like no one knows. Like if there's a 10% chance that that's true, which you know that might be the case. Like we don't know. Like if it's true, it's probably not true. Perhaps I mean again, no one really knows. But like even if it's a 10% chance, I'd want to know that because there's some people saying if there's a 10% chance of getting heart disease, like yeah, you know, they want to see their daughter graduate from high school. Like they're like, no, thank you, I don't want to do that. You know, so. I'm just, there is a theoretical reason that chronically taking this could be an issue. Um, and unfortunately, given the legal landscape, I always like to remind people another risk is, is legality. Like just because it's in vogue, um, you know, don't forget that because I, I, I remind people like a few years ago, like there's this, you know, some headlines about a CEO and I think Silicon Valley and he was bragging about microdosing. He got canned, like yeah. dropped from the board and they're like, Dude, you're like going public about using a schedule one substance. And like, I mean, Elon had some bad repercussions just for smoking a blunt with Joe Rogan that time. I mean, every like, single SpaceX employee has to get drug tested now because he smoked weed on Joe Rogan podcast. I didn't know that. Yeah, wow. isn't that why? That was the repercussion. Every single SpaceX employee now gets drug tested because he smoked the joint on. Uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast, which is crazy. <laughs> as if, like, either that was or wasn't a concern before no. like it's it for them <laughs> what is yeah like like that's just crazy so i think there may be a possibility there's something real there with the creativity i would put higher bets on the fact that there's creative outcomes from high doses of psychedelics yes. just because Agreed. the anecdotes are like in the millions <laughs> like, yeah and everyone has, who's done it has been right like, hey, i always that's, that's remind people thing. there's the beatles before and after lsd and like that was a big <laughs> difference not a controlled experiment but like so I don't know, there could be something with the microdosing and we haven't done as a field, we haven't done the best experiments yet, you know, so that's still, even with high doses, we don't know there's scant evidence that leads to creativity, but I think that's a really good, but at least within and creativity can mean a lot of things. Like what is it? Um, my guess is that, that it would even like high doses would lead to a kind of a broader selection of ideas and 
the way creativity works is that you know you have a very it's like natural selection you have all this variability some of it works out and so you might get it and some of it doesn't so like you know evol- like variations in the genome it's like some lead to great success and some <laughs> like um early death and so it may be that psychedelics increase all kinds of like creative like you know you know wild ideas some of those are great ideas and others are really stupid ideas <laughs> And so it kind of, it may depend on how you, that would be my guess, you know, Uh, but we need wild thinkers and we need to then sift through like, what are the great from crazy ideas? I think a lot of the very creative folks, they're like that. Like, if you look, they actually have some ideas that didn't work out, but thank goodness they existed because we need folks to go out there and kind of cast the nets wide and, and either those people or in many cases, other people have more of the skills and interest in vetting out, like out of those possibilities, what holds up and what is wishful thinking. So I would, I would put more bets on that, that high doses lead to creativity, but certainly a possibility that low doses, um, that micro doses do as, as well. We just don't really, we're not sure. It's mainly anecdote yeah. at this point. Let's slightly switch gears and do a quick rapid fire. Mm-hmm. True or false, cannabis is addictive. Yes, I'll leave it true. (laughs) I want to put a caveat in there, but like many, like most people that try it don't become addicted and the consequences of that. I'm defying your rules, Brian. I'm sorry. The the consequences of people that have a a problem stopping are nowhere near what they are for alcohol and many other addictive. But yes, it can. People have some people, a subset of users have trouble stopping when they want to stop. It's very clear. Yeah. The number one thing a majority of society gets wrong about psychedelics. They don't necessarily lead you to become more ethical, better people. Necessarily. True or false. All drugs have the same roughly abuse potential. False. True or false. The psychology of xenophobia hinders the public's understanding of the medicinal benefits of psychedelics. Oh, definitely true. A compound you have not studied but are most intrigued about? 5-methoxy-DMT. If psychedelics therapies fail or never make it, what's the number one reason why? Overzealous enthusiasm. What researchers or studies are a must-read for you? The old days, the 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 first big group that doesn't get the attention, the Saskatchewan group um, that first discovered psychedelic therapy, Humphrey Osman, Abram Hoffer, Duncan Blewett, etc. If you could put anything on a billboard, metaphorically speaking, to get a message to billions of people, it could be an image, a quote, or word, or something that inspired you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, that's a good one. Rapid fire. Um Think beyond yourself. Ethics and money are no issue. What research or study would you do? Examining whether psychedelics can, uh, at least in some cases, lead to like telepathic abilities and and psi phenomenon like that. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever felt strongly one way pre-study only to be surprised or shocked after it concluded? Yeah, with psychedelics? Yes, yes, yes. What was the study? 
with Salvinor and A, the degree to which people were actually having claimed um, subjective entity contact, that astonished me, um, the frequency with which that happened. And, and, and that that certain that certain people claimed even had incidental therapeutic effects from it, um, which doesn't seem to be a common like reported anecdote with at least smoking salvi divinorum. What's your current perspective on the state of psychedelic research? Do you believe it's cult-like? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of cult vibes. Why? I think there's it's the same kind of mistakes that people make in other areas. I think there's a lot of hero hero worship. And I don't know. I know people can say, well, you know, I'm trying to like whatever. Like I want to be an act. You know, I've done a lot of work in the area and I I, I, I like talking to the public and let them know what I I know, but at the same time, it's like, I'm just a person. I just want to remind people. I'm just like someone had an interest in this stuff and went to school long enough to study it. And so I think people need to check their egos. I think there's a lot of ego inflation amongst uh, certain scientists, not all for sure, but there's a like a, a weird hero worship. Um, and uh, I think there, there are scientists and clinicians that want to fill in the blanks for people, like because when people have a huge psychedelic experience, oftentimes they confront the big questions. Does God exist? What's the meaning in life? What's the nature of reality? Like when people often say it's the most meaningful experience of their life, like that's easily taken advantage of, which can also include stuff like sexual abuse and inappropriate relationships between like, you know, like sleeping with your clients and this type of thing. It's probably even more likely with you're giving people psychedelic sessions, man. There can be like this hero worship of like, you're the, you're, you're the access to the, the divine or, or what have you, um, which we could see where that in the cases of religions and other areas where that by a subset can be radically abused. Yeah. And so that's very real for a real, very real potential for the psychedelic area. You're going to see clinicians like sleeping with half their patients and like having sessions at their house and, being the would-be guru, you're going to see that like that type of stuff, even from, you know, credential doctors. Five years from now, what research, what breakthroughs, what do you think has changed from the landscape? Well, I, I certainly think based on the trajectory, we're going to have, um, uh, depending on the FDA and the EMA in Europe, but a multiple approved MDMA and psilocybin will probably be approved by that point. Um, for multiple disorders, um, depression, various substance use disorders, maybe end of life care, um, and we'll we'll probably figure out a few more things about how it's working in the brain, but in the big picture, probably not within that 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 time frame. Um, there'll be a lot more research with other psychedelics by that by that point, and we will have studied other disorders, and we'll probably find out for certain things that it doesn't work, like it wouldn't be surprising at the research, like anorexia and some other things, you know, didn't didn't quite work out, because there's going to be boundary conditions, nothing's going to work for everything, and yeah. Alright, Matt, prediction time. Matt, kids, drugs, and a developing brain, do you think we will see studies done on the potential benefits for kids if so, do you have any guesses on where there could be a big opportunity? Yeah, in therapeutic populations, for sure. In fact, FDA incentivizes it. They want it. And MAPS has plans to do that with MDMA. And so this makes sense because there's a risk in like not treating severe PTSD and not treating depression that could lead to suicide. 
And so, and, and FDA is clear, and I've talked with them on this, they, they want these studies. And the way it works is if something's approved for adults, then you move on to say, okay, you start with the older, you know, minors. So I forget the particular categories of ranges, like, but they'll say you start 16 to 18 years old or 16 to 17 year olds, you start there. Yeah, but you, you can go too far with that. Everyone is like, as a parent, I could say it's understandable. It's like people are risk, really risk averse with, when, when it comes to kids, but you need to be balanced and again, realize that like, yeah, un, untreated mental health disorders in kids, in adolescents and perhaps younger is also, uh, you know, uh, a, a real risk, you know? And so you just, you just what you want to be cautious. You just want to be principled and cautious and not let some theoretical concern, some like bumper stick le- level, like concern, keep you from, you know, responsibly, you know, making the inquiry. Kellen? Um, I agree with uh, what Matt has to say. I mean, I'm thinking about how many, how many children have had really like traumatic experiences that then they've kind of carried them with like in their psych psyche for, you know, a decade plus, And then they hit their like mid twenties or mid thirties. And they're like, like, Oh wow. Like I've had all these issues throughout my life because I never dealt with this super traumatic experience I had when I was 12. Right. Because, you know, and all of this, these negative outcomes from just kind of putting it under the rug and not dealing with it. I think that there's an opportunity for like what you've seen with psilocybin or MDMA to really kind of approach that experience and be able to eliminate it or remedy it early on in that person's life, extending the quote unquote happiness they can experience for multiple decades. So I I do think that there's a massive potential there, but just as as Matthew is saying, like there are so many obstacles that are going to have to be overcome and and significant caution is going to have to be undertaken when you're performing, giving a, a child uh, a psychoactive compound like that. So um, it's a lot of work to be done. But but what do you think, Brian? I think at the end of the day, if these compounds can help people and there are scientific benefits that demonstrate that these change people's lives and can make a difference for them, I, I think it's important that we look to do that. I think exactly like you said, Kellen, that these kids that have PTSD and these traumatic events early on in their lives that, that influence them later on, just affording them um, an opportunity to, to maybe reset or to move forward, obviously that'll tail a ton of science behind it in order to confirm those claims but i think helping others is is one of the benefits that i think we as society can do a better job of of looking to uncover whatever is necessary in order to help people um, do better in their lives and we should remember like we routinely give kids all kinds of psychoactive substances but frankly far worse i mean i mean adderall is amphetamine i mean that's just as addictive as cocaine like we give kids like and i'm not saying it shouldn't be used ever it's overused. I'm comfortable saying that, but like by a lot, in my opinion, but we routinely give kids all kinds of substances that are including psychoactive substances, benzodiazepines, stimulants that in the scheme of things, there's, I would say far more reason to be concerned, especially compared to say, you know, if the research supports it, you know, taking MDMA under professional medical like supervision in the clinic, you know, a couple of times to address PTSD or, or, you know, maybe same thing with psilocybin for depression, for example, 
you know, like again, risk benefit ratio, like we, it's all about helping, helping people and not harming them. Perfectly well said. So Matt, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to read more. Where can they find you? Um, probably the best place is follow me on uh, Twitter or X, as they say these days, at drug underscore researcher. Awesome. We'll link it all in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.